Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. And before we get into the details of this case, I want to take a second to discuss the fact that this case is another unsolved case. Kinsey covered an unsolved case last week, and while I know not all listeners want to hear these cases because they do not have a resolution or an ending necessarily, we, however, feel like they're still important to share. Much like our Missing Monday cases that we cover, we believe that there are people out there that know something and can come forward with information to help move these cases along. We always hope and dream to be able to have these unsolved or missing cases to reach the right ears and for someone to realize that they have important information. I know for many consuming true crime content, it is for an entertainment or to try and understand the evil that is among us, but I also believe there is a deeper purpose for what we do with our platform. Awareness is a major reason why we do what we do. The more awareness on these cases, the better. So while I understand that some people want to know that there is a resolution in cases that we cover, just remember that this is real life for these families. These families are hoping for the day that they get that resolution, and you truly never know if by us telling these stories, we may help them find those answers. I also want to say that I haven't seen a ton of coverage on this case. This case was one that I found in our case suggestion box, and it wasn't one that I was familiar with. I think the main reason why there isn't much coverage on this case from other true crime creators is because the information is very sparse. But if you've been following us for some time, you know that we also feel very strongly about still sharing these cases that have minimal information. These people matter. These people have loved ones that miss them daily, and they deserve to be remembered and their names to be spoken. So without further ado, let's get into the unsolved case of Kevin Ives and Dawn Henry. Donald George Henry was born to his parents, Curtis Henry and Marvel Epperson, on September 30th, 1970. And Larry Kevin Ives, who went by his middle name of Kevin, was born to his parents, Larry and Linda Ives, on April 28th, 1970. Both Don and Kevin grew up in Alexander, Arkansas. 
I will say that there are a few articles out there that did state that they grew up in Bryant. And when I looked up the distance between the two cities, it's just a few minutes drive. But from what my understanding is, they grew up in Alexander, which is a very small town within the Pulaski and Saline counties. According to the census for 2021, the town was just over 3,600 people. But when viewing the census, it looked like back in the early 90s, they had just over 300 people. So as I said, it was a really small town. And this town was founded as a construction camp for the nearby railroad. Kevin and Dawn were best friends. They both went to the same high school, and they often were found hanging out at each other's houses. There isn't much information out there about them growing up, but what I do know is that the two boys were very well-liked by their peers, and they were quite popular in school. At the time of their murders, the boys were awaiting for the school year to begin, where they were going to be seniors in high school at Bryant High School. Don was 16 and Kevin was 17. Again, there isn't much out there about the boys and who they were as people, but from the pictures that I have seen of them, they look like your average teenage boys with happy-go-lucky smiles on their faces. I did, however, read that both of the boys enjoyed working on their cars, which one of them owned a Firebird and the other one owned a Camaro. And they both enjoyed hunting and hanging out with their girlfriends. On the night of August 22nd, 1987, Dawn and Kevin met up with a group of friends at a local commuter parking lot. And I guess at this time, this parking lot was a popular place that the teens in the area would go to meet up and just hang out. Sometime around midnight, the two decided that they were going to go back to Dawn's house, which is where they were going to be staying for that night. At some point, they decided that they were going to go night hunting. So when they arrived back to Dawn's house, Dawn ran inside to talk to his dad while Kevin waited on the porch. After chatting some with his dad, he grabbed his 22 caliber rifle and one of his dad's spotlights. Dawn and Kevin headed out to go hunting around 12.15 a.m., which now made it August 23rd, 1987. The boys didn't have to go far for this hunting adventure because outside of Don's home was a very heavily wooded area that also had a train track that ran behind it. Now, after this point that the boys left the home, it is completely unknown on what exactly the boys did. It's obviously assumed that they went out and began their hunting trip, but there isn't any way to know for sure. It's unknown if while they were out there, they crossed paths with anyone, or if maybe they had planned to meet up with others. But what happened next, nobody could have anticipated. Around 4 a.m. on August 23, 1987, in Alexander, Arkansas, a 6,000-ton cargo train that was said to be a mile long was making its regular nightly run to Little Rock, Arkansas. The train was traveling around 52 miles per hour with engineer Stephen Schroyer manning the massive train. 
Stephen spotted something ahead in the distance that was lying across the train tracks. As they rapidly approached the object, Stephen quickly realized that these were two individuals lying parallel across the tracks. The boys were lying exactly the same with a light green tarp covering them from the waist down and their arms were down straight by their sides. Stephen immediately started blaring the train horn and switched the train to do an emergency stop. However, a 6,000-ton train does not stop on a dime. And despite his best efforts to wake the boys from the track and to stop the train, it ultimately hit the boys and carried their bodies for a half mile before the train was able to come to a complete stop. Stephen and other crew members on the train immediately called 911, and when the authorities and the EMTs arrived on scene, they found Don's 22 caliber rifle lying next to him on the tracks. According to an article published by Medium.com, EMTs at the scene had noted that the boy's blood looked darker than it should have been, as though it lacked oxygen. The same EMT that noted this also said that the blood was oozing instead of fresh, and that their skin was colorless, which indicated that Kevin and Dawn had been dead for some time, before their bodies were put on the tracks. Now, one thing to note here was that Stephen told authorities exactly what he saw before the train collided with them. He told the authorities of how the boys were lying, and he'd mentioned that green tarp that Stephen recalls being placed over the bodies from the waist down. What I found, though, was that this green tarp was nowhere to be found when authorities arrived, and apparently it was never found either. Which we are going to discuss that further in detail a little bit later, but just keep that little tidbit in the back of your mind. So even though the boys were obviously in bad shape due to being struck by a train, they were able to identify them as being Kevin and Dawn. They were taken in for an autopsy that was performed by a state medical examiner named Dr. Malik, and he concluded that the boys had smoked as many as 20 marijuana cigarettes or joints, causing the boys to be so high out of their minds that they laid on the tracks, passed out, and was in such a deep marijuana-induced coma that they couldn't feel or hear the train approaching. Their deaths was ruled as an accidental death due to marijuana intoxication. When the families of the boys heard this conclusion, and quite frankly, all of the community, absolutely nobody believed that this was the case. The only people that believed that this was what had happened was Dr. Malik and the authorities. The boys' parents were adamant that they were not that kind of kids. They weren't smokers, they didn't use drugs, and they were good kids who avoided any kind of illegal activity. But of course, we all know kids will be kids and they do things behind their parents' backs that they obviously don't know of, which I think we all can relate here that we have all been there at some point in time. Another thing that stuck out to the boys' parents is the fact that they were lying in the same exact way. 
if this was a drug-induced coma, you wouldn't think that they would be so perfectly positioned across the tracks, lying side by side like Stephen the engineer had recalled. Another thing that people were really hung up on is the fact that this medical examiner and the police were pushing this narrative that the boys had slept through this train horn. I'm not sure about y'all, but I have been fairly close to a train when it is rapidly passing. Not only do you hear the horn when it sounds off, but you can hear the wheels on the tracks. You can hear the movements of all of its components working in unison to power this massive, massive thing down the tracks. And not only can you hear it, you can physically feel it. This is a huge, huge, huge ton of steel and metal grinding down the tracks at over 50 miles per hour. The whole ground would have been rumbling. And to consider that these teenage boys were just passed out, lying across the tracks, just does not seem fathomable to most everyone who heard about this case. Don's father, Curtis, did not believe for a second that this was what had happened to his son. And one of the big reasons was that Don was so particular about his rifle. He would have never just laid it in the gravel or on the train tracks like that because he was super particular and protective about it because he wanted to make sure that it was always properly handled and he would have never laid it down willy-nilly, especially in the gravel, for fear that it would get scratched up. Don treated that rifle like it was gold and took pride in the way that it was. So for it to have just been laid down next to him on the tracks, Curtis said that there is absolutely no way that his son would have done that. After talking to each other, both Don and Kevin's parents went down to the authorities and asked them to please take another look at things. In their gut, something wasn't right. Things weren't adding up, and I think they just knew in their minds that this was all completely wrong. But to authorities, their job was done, and they didn't want to look back into things. The medical examiner said it was an accident, and to them, his word was the final word. Their hands were clean of it. They were done. There was no reason in their minds to keep digging up at this case when these teenage boys just accidentally died on train tracks one summer night. And because the authorities were refusing to look further, Don and Kevin's parents hired their own private investigator. The first thing that this private investigator did was go down to the authorities to also request that they re-look into this case. He received the same amount of pushback that Don and Kevin's parents did. So with zero help from the authorities, the private investigator and the boys' parents decided that they were going to go to the media and hold a press conference. Their hopes with this press conference was to gain further media attention about this case and to hope that someone would come forward with information. They also really wanted to put the pressure on law enforcement as well to hopefully get them to change their minds about reopening this case. And thankfully, this tactic worked, and the authorities agreed to finally reopen the case and re-examine everything. Once they reopened the case, a prosecutor by the name of Richard Garrett got involved, and he had both of the boys' bodies exhumed to have a second autopsy performed by a different expert. 
When this second autopsy was done, the results were much different than the first. This new expert found that the boys had not actually smoked up to 20 joints that night like they had originally said, and that they had smoked somewhere between one and three joints. This doctor also stated that the boys would have had to have had over 4,000 times the amount of THC that was actually in their system in order for them to be in this alleged drug-induced coma. Not to mention, there are several doctors that found Dr. Malik's first findings as very bizarre, and they even stated that they had never heard of anyone becoming unconscious from exposure to any amount of THC. This medical examiner also concluded that there was sufficient evidence to prove that at least one of the boys was already dead when they were laid out on the train tracks, and it is believed that the other boy was unconscious. The deaths were then ruled as probable homicides. The prosecutor, Richard Garrett, I mentioned earlier, was determined to figure out what had happened to these boys. And what he wanted to know more about was that green tarp that the engineer had stated was on the boys before the train hit them. Now, Stephen, the train engineer, was certain that he saw this tarp and then it was nowhere to be found. And I guess that Stephen had told authorities that night after the train hit the boys all about it. He told the authorities about the tarp and explained how it was on them. And they just brushed it off because it wasn't around the immediate area where the train had physically stopped. I think there was even some questions about whether this tarp truly existed and the authorities were questioning whether Stephen saw it right. But Stephen swore up and down that it was there. And remember, after hitting the boys, the train continued to travel for a half mile. So at this point, it could have been anywhere. It seems from what I've read and learned about this case that because the authorities didn't really see it in the general area when they first arrived on scene, they didn't really take it seriously and brushed off this tarp as being something that wasn't real or made up, and they didn't go and take a look truly in that area around where this all took place. Now, Stephen had made a comment in 1988 regarding this tarp, and he said, quote, That to me would be like questioning the existence of the boys on the track, because what's real is real and what's not is not. And it was there as well as the boys, end quote. I think Stephen was completely frustrated by the fact that zero attention was given to this tarp. And while it may just seem like a random tarp, we have no idea what could have been on this tarp as far as evidence goes. I feel like because this was ruled an accident, that this tarp was never properly looked for. And it's unfortunate because it might have been the missing piece to this puzzle. So after this second autopsy was done, a third and final one was done. And in this autopsy, even more details came out. This medical examiner that performed this autopsy found that there was evidence of stab wounds to Dawn's back and Kevin had suffered a major blow to the head. And they found that this blow to the head did not come from the train. 
The medical examiner also examined clothing that was found that belonged to Dawn, and the back of the shirt revealed evidence to match the wounds on his body. I find this information a little bit confusing, though, because it said that when Dawn and Kevin were struck by the train, that Kevin was not wearing this shirt. So somehow this shirt was within the area and not on his body at the time that the train made impact. I'm not sure exactly where this shirt was found, if it was found nearby, lying next to them, or what, but I did find it interesting that the shirt wasn't physically on his body at the time that the train hit. Now, the blow that Kevin had sustained to the head was on the left side of his head, and whatever it was that struck him was similar to the butt of Don's rifle. So it is believed that Don's rifle was used to strike Kevin. This third autopsy finding switched the manner of death from probable homicides to homicides. So now with their manner of death as for sure homicides, now it was time to really get down and to begin trying to piece together what happened to the boys on that night. So as information was put out to the media, some tips and leads started to come in. And one of those leads was that a week before Don and Kevin's murder, a man was spotted wearing military fatigues near the train tracks. The way that he was acting and his presence was extremely suspicious, so the police were called out to check things out. When they arrived on scene, they tried to question this man, and the man fired his gun at police and fled the area. Thankfully, the responding officers weren't hurt, but they were never able to find the man. Allegedly, on the night of August 22nd to August 23rd, witnesses said that they had seen a man in military fatigues less than 200 yards from where Kevin and Don would later be found. But they weren't able to track down once more who this person was. It does make me wonder, though, considering this green tarp was left behind on the boys, maybe this person in military fatigues was out in the woods, had some survival items with him, including the tarp, and attacked the boys. We already know that this person had previously tried to shoot at police officers. There's a high probability that they'd likely be willing to harm two teenage boys. But this wasn't the only theory and possible scenario that they had to consider. As rumors began to mill about like they do in any small town, things started to be said that this case was linked to drug trafficking. People started saying that Kevin and Don may have been in the wrong place at the wrong time and that they potentially had stumbled upon some drug exchange taking place in the woods and they were likely killed to ensure that they would keep quiet. The prosecutor Garrett believed that the boys had seen something they shouldn't have and so were killed because of it and that it had to do with drugs. What's unfortunate about this entire ordeal, and likely why this case remains still unsolved to this day, was the fact that the police really didn't do much in the beginning. They really wrote this entire thing off from the start that they were killed as an accident. And because it was ruled as accidental, they didn't follow proper protocols that they typically would for a homicide investigation. Now, the sheriff at the time was a man by the name of James Steed, and the boys' parents really were unhappy and very verbal about their unhappiness with him. 
He really limited the resources that went into this case and didn't want to essentially waste money on this case when he felt that there was nothing more than an accident that had taken place. Even after this case was ruled as a homicide and likely due to drug trafficking, he still refused to allow any funds to go into this investigation. On top of that, Sheriff Steed also lied about what had happened to the boys' clothing. He had stated that he had sent Don and Kevin's clothing to the FBI for further examination, but he never did that, and instead he sent them to the Arkansas State Police Crime Lab. The sheriff also didn't follow up with things that he had said that he would do for this case, such as testing of Don's gun to see if it had been fired that night because people nearby had said they heard gunshots before the train went by. After his lack of drive and motivation on this case, it wasn't a surprise to those in the community when he wasn't re-elected as sheriff, and because of that, he was taken off the case, thankfully. I have to say his poor job at handling this investigation almost seems like maybe he was a shady character and had reasons for not wanting this to be looked into. Now, after the sheriff wasn't reelected and lost his position, there were some strange deaths that took place that seemed like they're connected somehow to the boys. In November of 1988, a man by the name of Keith McCaskill, who was said to be an informant for a different prosecutor named Dan Harmon, was killed. Dan Harmon was also someone who was working with Kevin and Don's family to help them receive answers early on in this investigation as well. So this Keith McCaskill was murdered as well, and he had been stabbed 113 times inside of his home, and his body was found wrapped in a shower curtain in the carport of his home. It was said that in the days leading up to his death, Keith had thought that he had been speaking to the wrong people, and he believed that he was being followed by police officers. Keith McCaskill was so convinced that he was being followed and that this meant his life was in jeopardy that he went as far as saying goodbye to his family and made funeral arrangements. Keith's involvement in the boys' case was that he was asked to take aerial photos of the crime scene, and not long after taking these photos, he was murdered. On January 22, 1989, a man by the name of Greg Collins was found dead in the woods in Prescott, Arkansas. According to the Medium.com article, Greg was subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury in regard to the deaths of Kevin and Dawn. He was found with three gunshot blasts, two to his chest and one to his face. And that same medical examiner who performed that first autopsy ruled Greg's death as a suicide, which I'm just going to say, I don't believe it. There was also the death of a young man whose name was Keith Cooney. Keith was an acquaintance of both Don and Kevin, and he had died just six months after the boys did in a motorcycle accident. Keith crashed into the back of a semi-truck on his motorcycle, and it was ruled an accident. But witnesses to the crash said that Keith had been being chased by a vehicle, and he was trying to escape from whatever car was chasing him down. They said that they witnessed Keith swerve and accidentally hit the back of the semi-truck. 
Also, people who claim to have seen his body after the accident said that his throat was slashed and the injuries to his body weren't consistent with the motorcycle crash either. Now, what is interesting about Keith's death, which makes it all the more suspicious to me, is the fact that Keith had also told his mother that he knew something about Don and Kevin's deaths, but he wouldn't say what. It was said, however, that Keith did disclose what he knew to his father and a few of his friends. And what he said to them was that he was with Don and Kevin on that night. He claimed that while they were out, Don and Kevin were approached by a cop car with two police officers inside, and that when they approached, Keith hopped on his motorcycle and took off. He believed that Don and Kevin were killed by those officers, and just before his death, Keith was also subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury. The next death that is interesting that seems like it could be connected was in April of 1989. A young man by the name of Jeff Rhodes was said to be a reported drug dealer, and Jeff had told his mom that he was in fear for his life. Jeff also made a call to his father who lived in Texas and told his dad that he needed to get out of Arkansas because he knew too much information about the boys on the track and about the death of Keith McCaskill. A day after this call took place to his father, Jeff's motorcycle was found on the side of the road. And the way that it was found, it appeared that maybe he had stopped for something. The bike wasn't crashed or anything. It was parked on the side of the road with the kickstand down. But Jeff was nowhere to be found. A week later, Jeff's body was found in a dumpster in Benton, Arkansas. He had been shot in the head, his body had been mutilated, and he had been set on fire. When the news spread of his murder, an anonymous caller called in and said that she believed that Jeff may have stopped for a police officer. In July of 1989, Richard Winters was found dead with a gunshot wound to the face. He had been considered as a suspect in Kevin and Don's death, but he had offered to cooperate with the grand jury before he was killed. Also in 1989, James Millam had been found decapitated inside of his home with his head completely missing from the home. Now, that medical examiner, Dr. Malik, again, the same one that ruled the accident for the boys case and the same one that said Greg had shot himself three times with a shotgun in suicide, ruled that in James Millam's case, he had died of natural causes and that James's small dog had eaten his owner's head. When the owner's head was found sometime later, blocks away, Dr. Malik said that the dog must have regurgitated the head, which is just utterly freaking stupid. I am, however, happy to report that Dr. Malik resigned from his position in 1991, and there is a whole lot of sketchy information out there about him. I think he was completely crooked, and again, there's a lot of information out there, so if you want to look into him yourself, I highly suggest it, because I think some of the information will blow your mind. It was said, though, that James Millam was a witness to a drug operation, and he also had witnessed Kevin and Don's murder. 
In 1990, Jordan Kettleson, who was rumored to have information about the boys' death, was found with a shotgun blast to his head in the front seat of his pickup. There was no police investigation done for his case. That is a whole slew of murders and deaths that all circle back around to have some sort of connection to the boys. What I find most interesting about all of these cases is the mention of the potential police involvement. And I do want to touch on this briefly because some of the things I found I think you guys will find interesting as well. So there was this witness who used the name of Jerry, and he came forward with information from the night that the boys were murdered. He said that he was in a convenience store parking lot that night when he saw three boys there, and they were all smoking a joint. Two police officers rolled up outside of the store, and this is when one of the kids hopped on a motorcycle and took off. The officers ended up beating the two boys who were still there and then threw them in the back of a cop car before taking off. When Jerry came forward with this information, he was put in jail for some child support payment that he hadn't paid, and he was put in jail for 90 days. When he was finally let out, he was told that he should leave town, which he allegedly did. There was also another witness who claimed to have seen two officers also beating two people outside of that convenience store before taking off in the cop car. Other things came out that prosecutor Dan Harmon was involved in this drug trafficking ring. And I'll let you guys do a deep dive of your own on that if you want to, because there's a lot of information out there about it. Um, There's also a lot of things that he did get in trouble for after all of this played out, including drug involvement stuff. Now, there is a lot of rumors and speculation and hearsay on this case, and it's really hard to try and fathom what is connected and what isn't connected. I'm going to get into some of the theories and discuss them because I think a lot of you guys are going to have your own theories and ideas, so I just want to go over what is out there. The first big major theory is that the boys stumbled upon some sort of drug trafficking situation. It was said that this area where they had been in was a place that some drug drops took place by airplane. So maybe some sort of drug drop or exchange was taking place in the woods and the boys stumbled upon it and was killed in order to keep them quiet. To go with this theory, in 2018, a former WWE wrestler by the name of Billy Haynes came out and said he was a part of a drug trafficking ring in Arkansas. He claimed that in the summer of 1987, he was providing security for a drug drop and had witnessed the murders of Kevin and Dawn. Not only did Billy claim that he witnessed this, he also named six other individuals who had been there when the boys were murdered. And among the list of names that he gave, he named three law enforcement officers, two attorneys and politicians, and he also named a bouncer from a local nightclub. Billy also claimed that corruption within the state of Arkansas ran deep, with the higher-ups in the state being heavily involved. I personally feel like with all of the other deaths in this area, paired with the multiple witnesses seeing police officers with the boys, and then Billy coming forward saying he also witnessed this years later, it just seems very plausible to me that this could potentially be what happened to the boys. 
I think at this point, it's almost too coincidental with all of these deaths. Not to mention, why would Billy just randomly come out and say he was involved? He was this WWE wrestler, and I could totally see him acting as security for some drug exchanges. And again, why would he just randomly insert himself into something like this? To come out and say that you are a part of this drug ring, plus being a witness to a murder, it just seems like a very large and bold thing to say willy-nilly. But then again, weirder things have happened. People confess to doing stuff all the time for attention or whatever else they think that they might gain. But it does go hand in hand with the boys being witnesses to something they shouldn't have seen. Another theory is that man is seen in the military fatigues I mentioned quite a bit earlier on in this episode. People aren't sure who he is. He clearly had a violent side to him if he's shooting at police officers when they're just trying to approach him to ask questions. There isn't enough information, I feel, to completely rule him out as a possibility. I really think that this entire thing was handled completely wrong, and I do think that this could potentially be a cover-up. We have these witnesses that have seen cops. We have the guy who felt like he was being followed by the cops and then he was murdered. We have a botched investigation with essentially zero effort to truly look at the case as something more than an accident from the get-go. Then the talk about the prosecutors and other big-time players in the state being involved in this ring. It seems like a ton of effort was used to cover something up. Linda Ives, Kevin's mother, fought for decades to get justice for the boys, and she passed away in June of 2021 without knowing answers on what had happened to her son and his best friend. Most of the Henry and Ives families believe that there will never be answers on what happened to the boys, and that's a tragic and heavy thing that they have to live with. Before her death in 1999, Linda Ives helped an investigative journalist named Mara Leverett write a book that was titled Boys on the Track, Death, Denial, and a Mother's Crusade to Bring Her Son's Killer to Justice. This book was an award-winning book, and you can purchase it still on Amazon today, so I will link that in the description of this episode. Lastly, I want to mention that in April of 2012, according to KATV, a group of people pushed to bring a bench memorial honoring the boys to Alexander City Park. They held an entire dedication ceremony to the boys when they revealed this bench, and it was reported that Linda had said that it meant a lot to her that people still remembered what happened to her son, Kevin, and Dawn. And guys, I hate to say it, but that is pretty much all of the information that is out there on this case. If you have information or know someone that does, there is a tip line that you can contact at 888-580-8477. This tip line is an anonymous tip line, so you can know that your safety is a priority when reporting things. I know that often people don't come forward out of fear, so this tip line is a safe place to report things anonymously. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, you can find it by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. 
Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you would like more true crime content, you can follow me at the same username on TikTok of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow myself personally, you can head over to Instagram and find me at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's case. Until next time, be aware and take care. 